And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Jeremiah. We'll be reading Jeremiah 14 and into chapter 15, um, just a couple of verses. Uh, But uh, we're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter. And again, don't let that concern you too much. The chapter and verse divisions were added much later. And so you'll see the connection, I think, very quickly of the first, uh, really a lot of chapter 15 and with chapter 14. But we are going to uh, just read the first two verses. So follow along with me as I read in the New King James Version, as is my custom. Jeremiah chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 2. God's word declares, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah through the droughts, concerning the droughts. Judah mourns and her gates languish, for they, they mourn for the land. And the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. And they went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were shamed and co- confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched. For there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood at the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. O Lord, our iniquities testify against us. Do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, my Savior, his Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O oh Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry, and when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. And then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. The Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed." And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, them nor their wives, their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke and with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace, but there is no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all these. And the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord. Such as for death to death, and such as for the sword to the sword, and such as are for famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity to the captivity. Well, this morning we are pressing in our study of Jeremiah. And we come to a very interactive chapter where we have... Three speakers, we have the Lord um, with his prophetic message through Jeremiah. We have Jeremiah's response, but we also have the people's response to the Lord's uh, prophecy, which is uh, not a, a joyful thing for them at all when they anticipate what's coming. 
Um, and we find that uh, God is responding quite differently than what we hear of today. But this morning we want to take our time to go through this and to see why God persists in remembering the iniquity of his people and punishing them even as they seem to be confessing their sin to him and their iniquity as a body. And we're going to look at that principle that I believe is still in place today, that we find many who believe that they are right with God because they have made a very simple confession, um, but have not really been accepted by God. And I believe this is the premise of Christ's statement that many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. And he will say, depart from me. I never, never knew you. Not I don't know you anymore, but I never knew you. And we want to look at that in the perspective of Jeremiah 14 and 15. Uh, some might contend, well, this is an unmerciful God, an unloving God. But we have seen certainly in the past 13 chapters that just is not the case. For God has leaned over and leaned over and leaned over to reach his people by sending prophets that they have rejected, that they have slain sometimes, uh, by being patient, waiting for them to come to repentance. And now we see something that looks like repentance to us, but in God's perspective is not. And so we want to be instructed today on what real repentance looks like and hopefully change some of our vocabulary when we talk about what it means to be uh, a quote-unquote Christian. And so before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word before us, your spirit within us by which we can uh, understand it. And we pray for his uh, liberty to work and move in our hearts and our minds to your glory, honor, and praise that he might uh, illuminate us to your truth, that we might have a tender heart to receive it, not only mentally and understanding it there, but in our hearts that we might be willing to conform ourselves to it, to allow it to transform us more into your image of your son this week than last, that we might allow it to impact us as you intended it to do, not superficially and not temporally, but uh, deeply and permanently. And Lord, we pray for your help in that, for it is certain that the words of men cannot affect this. So we rely upon your working in our life, and we're willing to receive it this morning. Again, we, as always, we pray you might guard this time. You might protect it from error, from opinion, uh, from the philosophies that we all bring to the table, but that we might uh, have the purity of your word before us. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, we come to the Lord uh, beginning the unfolding of his punishment on Israel. And again, like many of the prophets, we do not have a chronologically consistent uh, book here. They're going to be jumping around. We've already seen that he has has reached forward in chapter 13 to the the time of Jehoiachim and uh, Chin, sorry. And uh, now he is reaching into another time where we are looking at famine that really predates chapter 13. But this is very typical of the prophets to be uh, intermingle the chronology because that really wasn't their goal in writing the books. It was thematic. And so, uh, and that's true in the New Testament as well, by the way. Uh, and so the themes are what we follow, not the chronology. We always want to set it to a calendar, um, but uh, that really wasn't their primary, not even their secondary interest was to do that. And so we find here uh, Jeremiah opening up the people to this word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is not something we want to hear. And that is, well, my punishment has started. And it will start by a famine in your land that will be uh, brought on by a drought. And this is a severe drought that's going to hit Israel. And so um, we start off with just that declaration, just how severe is it going to be? And we're going to bring Judah to her knees. And in chapter 14, 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts, and I love plural, multiple droughts after another. What's its purpose? Well, its primary, chronologically, its first purpose was to humble Judah. In verse 2, we find Judah mourning, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. 
And so from the noble people all the way out to the beasts of the field are described for us here in, in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 of just how severe this famine is. There is really no place where the drought isn't touching in Judah. And so there's no water, whether you're a king or whether you're a donkey, it doesn't matter. There's just no water, there's no grass. And so it describes Judah's mourning, that they are in a time of sadness, which we need to take with a grain of salt. Why? While we are going to hear them cry out to the Lord, we are going to find them mourning something very tangible and temporal, something of this world, um, which is in stark contrast to how they should have been acting about their sin. Here they are mourning over their physical loss. That they are here mourning because, in fact, in verse 2 it says, um, what did they mourn for? They didn't mourn for their sin, they mourned for the land. They were mourning for their physical injury that they were receiving. They weren't mourning for its cause, which was their unwillingness to turn to the Lord. They were going to persist in that. Even in the midst of using vocabulary that you and I would say, well, these people want to turn to Christ. They want to get things right with God. Um, But we know from God's response that that just isn't the case. This isn't really what's in their heart. And that is a theme, remember, in Jeremiah. What is going on in the hearts of Israel? Remember, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, and we're going to see this all the way through the book, what was the problem with Israel? Is that they confess me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. And this is perhaps the premier illustration of that in this chapter. Of what confessing God with your mouth, even while your heart isn't in tune with him, looks like, sounds like, and what a disgusting thing it is to God. So here they are, and they're on their knees. God has humbled them through the agricultural disaster that he has brought upon them. And we find them that they are mourning for the land. They are mourning for their loss there of blessing. But we do not find them really addressing the changes, the transformations that need to happen among them. That they need to be mourning for what brought this on them. And in fact, we're going to find that just as, again, another theme of Jeremiah, that it's the prophets and priests that have led the people into such a disastrous state of heart that they themselves are confounded of what to really do. How do we approach God? The prophets and priests aren't helping them. And we have just a very isolated messenger in terms of Jeremiah and some of his contemporaries that were called to the Lord, all with a message that Israel, Judah didn't want to hear. So we come into verse 7, and we find here they are. Um, look, The terminology up to this point is they're mourning, they're confounded, they're ashamed, um, they're covering their heads. That's that whole plight of, of just uh, grieving over the circumstances of the droughts that have hit them and the famine that it has caused in the land. And so we we find them fully humbled by God. And we think, well, this is going to turn their heart. And we see some words here beginning verse 7 that would encourage us. And if I were a pastor and if I were Jeremiah listening to these words, I would say, oh, we're finally getting it. Let's read them again. Lord, though our iniquities testify against us. It starts right there. Do it for your name's sake. We're going to come to that. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. And then they refer to him as the hope of Israel, our Savior in time of trouble. And we say, well, well, that's a great start. Pastor, that's what you tell us everyone needs to get to, is they need to get to the point of acknowledging their sin. That's where it starts. Because then, once we understand we have a need, we can go to God and seek to have that need met through Jesus Christ. That we come and we're going to trust in him. But we want to recognize that this first step cannot be of its own. It cannot be the only step. If the first step is the only step, you are still going to be lost in your sin. You are still going to be uh, at odds with God. You're going to have your sins accredited to you still. Why? The world is willing to acknowledge sin. Less and less, granted, in our society we want to 
say fewer and fewer things are sin, um, but uh, people are still willing to go to the confessional and, and declare sin. Right? Doesn't that happen in every Catholic church here in, in our community around the world? We are willing to go in and, and confess sin to a priest. Um, do you then say because they confess sin that they have been forgiven of it? No. Why? Because the remedy for that sin is wrong. The remedy is you go out and you pray these certain prayers, you do these certain deeds, and we'll, I'll absolve you of this sin. Well, that is not the remedy of sin in Scripture. We are seeking the remedy outside of what God requires. We are seeking our own remedy for our sin. Yes, it's important that we recognize sin, and that is a necessary step. But even when that is acknowledged, and we have declarations like this, where we have saying, Lord, our iniquities testify against us. We are, we are backslidden. Uh, we have sinned against you. And say, well, why, hasn't, why won't God receive that kind of confessional? And we're going to see a little of this played out in, in the rest of their words. But we see again, the problem isn't their confessional. All along, the problem has been in their heart. Remember that Israel, Judah, particularly here in Jerusalem, um, that Judah has still been going every required time to go do their sacrifices. They have been showing up on the holidays, on on Passover, on on the different feasts. They've been showing up on the Sabbaths. They've been showing up there with their required sacrifices. Um, That has never really been the problem. They didn't stop doing that. And to participate in that meant that they had to confess their sin on the Paschal lamb or or, uh, even on the bulls or goats that they would have sacrificed for burnt offerings. And and that, that persisted through this whole time when they were wandering away from God. So they were acknowledging sin and the need to address it, and they almost seemed, on a superficial way, to be doing it the way God said. But it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that was taking away sin, ever. It was their faith and their trust in the one true and living God, and that he would provide a way. And so they were doing that on the Sabbath, and then come come. The first, or the, you know, the first day of the week, the second day, you know, the, the other six days of the week, they were serving the gods of the nations and the high places. And God says, how can I accept your sacrifice on this day when on the next day you are profaning me before false gods and idols? And you're doing whatever your heart wants. And so you have not surrendered your heart to me. In totality. Well, this is what it sounds like. This is what it, it focuses on. Israel's confession is not about repentance. It's not about turning from my sin to God's way. You do not find that anywhere in here. What we are saying is, yes, I have sinned, but God, your nature is what I'm going to call you on. Look at it very carefully. After confessing sin, look, and it's in the midst of their confession, that one phrase, do it for your name's sake. And here we go, verse 8. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior, in time of trouble, why do you, you see the claim, be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Um, It's almost a challenge, isn't it? Why don't you deliver us? Why do you act as though you can't deliver us? Why do you walk around like you're a stranger? This is your city. This is your nation. These are your people. You need to deliver us. You need to remember your covenant to us. We are called by your name. You are in our midst. And the question is, was that true? Is the Lord in their midst? Well, according to the word of Jeremiah that we've had thus far, that hasn't been the case for some time. The presence of the Lord in their midst had been isolated at this point through a handful of prophets that the people didn't want to listen to, that they cursed, that they killed, that they imprisoned, that they persecuted. 
This was the extent of the Lord's presence in their midst. But look at their claim. Their claim was that you can't abandon us. And in fact, this is going to come out later in the chapter um, when we get to uh, verse 19 and following. Uh, the question again and again that we pick up uh, really extensively, verse 21, do not abhor us for your name's sake. There's that phrase again. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Incredible, right? You should read something like that and say, you've got to be kidding me. The nerve of these people. They come to God, the one that they have been guilty of breaking the covenant with. And remember what the covenant declared. The covenant declared two things. If you obey, you will get blessing. What else did the covenant declare? If you follow after other gods, if you go after the nations, if you sin against this, then you will have curses. God isn't breaking the covenant. He's the one keeping the covenant. Because they have fallen into the condition of being disobedient, therefore it is incumbent upon him to respond by cursing their land for their name's sake. But you see, in their mind, their sin shouldn't interrupt God's blessing. And this is the attitude of heart that condemns them. Is that they are all ready, and they're, they're very knowledgeable and very eloquent in calling God to, because of who you are, because of your nature, because of your person, and, be, and remember, we're only picking out certain parts of his nature, name, and person that we like. You know, oh, you're merciful, you're the God of Israel, this is Jerusalem is your temple, all these things, we're going to have this legal argument with you that you shouldn't forsake us. You can't do this to us. For all of this on your namesake. Because of who you are. Never mind what we have done. Yes, we've sinned, but... Not that much. God's response is to say, I don't accept you. God has made it very clear what he wants from his people. Not just to acknowledge that they have sinned, that they have backslidings, but what has he said over and over again? Return to me. Essentially, what Israel has done is they have gone the wrong way, and now the drops, the drops, the droughts have stopped them in their tracks. But it hasn't turned them around. And that's the difference. The famine and the loss and the recognition that we are in some trouble has stopped them from continuing down this path, of, temporarily at least, from continuing down this path, going after other gods, the gods of the nations, and into their harlotries and, and uh, adulteries and into their horrific things that they were perpetrating against each other and against God. It has stopped them, and they have stopped, and they have done some accounting and said, yeah, we aren't where we're supposed to be, and yes, I'm a sinner, but that's as far as it went. And they confessed, and they said, okay, well, we stopped. So they didn't go back to God. They called God to them. Come to us, and, and we'll just stop right here in the wrong path, in the wrong direction, and we will ask you to restore us. But that's not repentance. God calls us not just to stop, but to turn and return to him. To follow after him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is the next step, if you will, that must closely follow on the heels of recognizing that I'm a sinner and need deliverance, is to recognize I can't save myself. I can't do it my way. I have to turn away from sin, self, to God and receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I need to receive Him. I need to accept this message. And so we find that they, this is a very carefully crafted confessional that is really trying to twist the arm of God and forcing Him to deliver you. And it sounds a little bit like Moses' 
argumentation with God, doesn't it? They're pretty well versed. Remember, Jeremiah's talking to the priests and prophets. They know the Old Testament, right? It wasn't the Old Testament. They know the Pentateuch. They know the law. Um, and they know what Moses did in salvaging Israel. But what they forget is what the ultimate result was. Do you remember Moses asking, you know, God says, I'm going I'm to just get rid of all of them. I'll start over with just you. Oh, wow. You know, talk about a small remnant. One. I'll just start over with you, Moses. I'm going to get rid of all of them. And Moses has an argument. His argument says, what are people going to say? You've brought these people out here to slay them? What are they going to say about you and the testimony? And so Moses has this, this discussion with God, and, and, and the Bible says that he even God changes his mind. That he says, okay, um, but I want you to remember what happened next. After Moses convinced God not to destroy all of Israel, what happened when Moses went back into the camp? Many, many, many Israelites died because of their disobedience. Because they didn't turn their heart back to God. So yes, Moses um, did successfully um, deliver Israel by this kind of argumentation. But we have to not forget that God was faithful to the covenant um, that he was in the process of establishing. Um, But many of Israel did suffer from punitive work of God against their sin. But here, the priests and prophets are trying to use that same line of argumentation not to deliver all of Israel, but to avoid the droughts. Well, that's not repentance. That's not following what God is told by the prophets men should do. They should turn from their sin and follow after God. So today we have a large class of people in our society and really around the world who are in this exact same condition, who are following after religious activity. And we're going to see that religious activity played out in their next discussion, um, that they believe um, God must accept um, because they have at least acknowledged their sin, backsliding, that they are uh, the ones that have iniquities against them, speaking against them. But what is tragic is that those same people who think they have resolved the sin problem are in the condition of Judah in verse 10. What does the Lord respond to this kind of very carefully worded uh, confession that then ultimately puts it onto God. Why aren't you blessing us? We at least acknowledge that we have sinned. Um, Well, that's really not enough. It's not really what God told you to do. That should have been the obvious part that you're sinning. You've acknowledged the obvious. Okay, Um, God needs to applaud you for that? No, now turn to me with all your heart. And so we find, verse 10, they... Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. And so God says, here's my response to you, that uh, the fact is you're still wandering. You're still wandering. Just because you stopped, the drought stopped your wandering a little bit and gave you pause to think about things and you acknowledge that you have sinned and backslidden is not the same as returning to me. It's not the same. And so just pausing in your life and saying, oh, I'm not a very good person and, and uh, well, God's love and as long as I acknowledge I'm not a good person, he'll come along and he'll figure out a way. Well, he has only one way. To redeem us from our sins. And that's Jesus Christ. And it requires us to repent, which means not just stop, but to turn away and to, to come to Him. And this is what they failed to do. And so God says, You're still wandering. You're still out there on the wrong path. You've still wandered out into the wilderness. 
And so you love it out there. You won't come back. You won't restrain your feet. You're still really out there playing the spiritual harlot with all of them. So no, I won't accept you. You have no intention in your heart of transforming or allowing me to transform you into my image. And so I'm going to remember and punish your sin. So that's God's perspective. Then he turns to Jeremiah, the one guy <laughs> in this milieu that uh, of the priests and prophets that is following after the Lord and speaking the truth. He says, um, now this is my position and my position is so established because it is evident to me that their heart has no intention of coming back to me. I don't want you to pray for them. And this is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that Jeremiah has been told, don't pray for these people. Not for their good. You can pray for them that I'd punish them and judge them, but don't pray for them for their good. Um, this is what they're doing. They're coming in with an unrepentant argument that I should bless them and that somehow that it's now in my court, that it's now in my side's the problem. Now, why are you being a stranger? This is where your house is. Well, his house isn't in Jerusalem. <laughs> cannot be confined in a building made with human hands. And so his statement is, don't pray for them. I'm not, and look at the list of what they're going to do. This is critical. Verse 12. When they fast, I'll not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence. We'll talk a little bit more about all that next week as we get into deeper into chapter 15. And we find that these spiritual activities, outward activities. I'm going to fast. I'm going to offer burnt sacrifice. I'm going to pray. We're going to do all these things. But if they are not reflecting a heart that has turned to God, but simply a heart in its arrogance, still seeking to do things, well, I'm going to fulfill the letter without anything going on inside. Jesus Christ compared that to white. To what? White washed sepulchers. They look on the outside and the inside is just death. And that's this is what it sounds like. This is what it looks like. This is what Pharisaism is. It's acknowledging I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but, uh, you know, that's my problem, but, you know, God's supposed to be love, mercy, and grace. So it's his problem if he doesn't accept me. And never crosses our mind, oh, I have to turn from my sin to him. I need to go to him. And we want to replace a soft, holy, righteous heart with external religious activity. And God says, I don't accept any of it. In fact, it just makes me even more disgusted. I don't even want you to pray for those people. That's pretty serious. When God comes to the one guy who is telling people the truth and says, don't even pray for them for their good. You're going to keep preaching to them, but don't you pray to me. Don't you try to argue with me. Their argument fails, and you're the, you're the man of God, you're the voice, but don't you come to me on their behalf either. Because you need to see their hypocrisy of them. And so Jeremiah's only statement to him is, they've been misled. They've been misled by the prophets and priests who tell them God can only bless you. You see, the prophets and priests have only told the people half the covenant. Sound familiar? Is that out there today? You can turn on the radio, you can turn on your TV, um, you can visit a few churches here in town, and they will tell you half the deal. God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is goodness. Yes, that's half the deal. That's why he sent his son to die for us. But God is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, he is just. And that requires something of us. That requires true repentance. Not just outwardly that I change my actions, but inwardly that I surrender to him my heart, my will. That's what God requires. To do otherwise is simply to put us into an even worse 
It's out of the out of the kettle into the fire kind of thing. You're in a worse circumstance. Can you imagine a worse circumstance than God telling godly people, don't even pray for them anymore. I can't think of a worse circumstance to be in. Why? Because you made this kind of an argument. Yeah, I'm a sinner, God, but you're God and you have to act a certain way because that's all we, because you have to. Because this is how we understand you to be. And therefore, you can't punish us. We at least acknowledge that we have sin. We do not find repentance in their attitude, but rather an accusativeness against God that this is your doing. You've got to remain faithful to the covenant. Well, we only know half the covenant. And whose fault was that? The prophets and priests. They told the people what they wanted to hear. Look at it in verse 14. The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, spoken to them. They prophesy to you false vision, divination, a worthless thing, the deceit of their heart. And again, there's that heart, the deceitful heart of Jeremiah, right? This is what they've done. And this is what's penetrating our culture, is half-truths, which are lies and not of God. And it leaves people thinking that their sin is resolved simply because they have confessed it, but they've never repented of it. And they'll go out with every intention of committing the same sin again this week, and knowing that, well, I can go into some place and confess it, and God has to forgive me, but I've never repented. And oh, we love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and must forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that's absolutely there. Have you read the rest of 1 John? <laughs> walk in the light. He's in the light. If you don't walk in the light, you're none of his. That's the other half. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no place for your sin there. You can't just confess it with the plan of doing it some more and, and call him to be Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us when there's no love of God, love of righteousness, love of his people in your heart. You see how easy it is for us to claim half the truth and have our sins be counted against us still, thinking that they're resolved because we only know half the argument. We only know half the truth. And this is the condition Judah was in, and it's the condition many of our churches are in today, that we really only know half of God and half of the equation of the relationship between us and God. And because of that, many who call themselves Christian are in their sin and under the curse, are rejected by God, and are simply being held waiting to be punished for their sin. And so God says, everything they said couldn't happen to you is going to happen to you. The people who tell you half the truth to guard you from whatever you think is a penalty of sin, whatever they tell you, that penalty that will be taken away, God says, that's exactly the penalty I'm going to give you. Isn't that incredible? And that's frightening. Because here's what our modern prophets and priests are saying. They're saying that if you do half the deal, God will deliver you from what penalty for sin? Eternal destruction. And God says the very thing they say wrongly is the very thing I'm going to give you. The one thing they say that their words will deliver you from, those aren't my words, those are half-truths. I'm remembering half the covenant. That's the very thing I'm going to lay on your shoulders, is that kind of punishment. And so all there is is weeping for them, and you're going to go out there and say, this is coming upon you. And the people hear this, that their verses 7, 8, and 9, their strange, unrepentant argument, confession, slash, accusation um, wasn't sufficient. God reiterates in verses 17 and 19, I am going to bring this judgment on you. It is going to be severe. It is going to be intensive. It is going to uh, cover all of Judah. No one's really going to be prevented from it. Either you're going to die or go into captivity. And again in verse 19, 
we have another response. Why do you hate us so much? (laughs) That's what they're asking. Why do you hate us so much? Now tell me that isn't how people respond to the full truth of God. Why does he hate us so much? Why is he so unfair? And that reveals something of the heart. That reveals that your heart never turned away from your sin, even after confessing it. Because you still think you have claim against God for the punishment you deserve because you never turned from your sin. Why have you done this to us? Why is there no healing? We're looking for peace. We're looking for healing. All you're giving us is trouble. We acknowledged our wickedness. We acknowledge not only ours, but the iniquity of our fathers. We have sinned against you. Don't hate us for it. You see the words? Why are you hating us? We acknowledge that we're sinners. But that's not what God called you to. He called you to turn from that sin to him. To reject it all. And to turn with all of your heart to him. That's what he's been calling to. And they refuse to do it. And they simply call again and again. Look at this. For your name's sake in verse 21. For the grace. Don't disgrace the throne of your glory. Don't break your covenant with us. Remember that. Um, and again, reiterating. Well, you're the only one that can you know, bring rain. We know that you're God. Yes, they acknowledge him. So do all the demons. They have to. Because they have to obey him too. All of this language is put forth and the conclusion is (laughs) you're now even worse. (laughs) I rejected you. Tell Jeremiah, don't even pray for you for good. And now I'm going to tell you after your second response that is just more of the same of the first one with this accusative nature within the midst of your confession of twisting who I am so that you can be off the hook for your sin, my conclusion is, at this point, even if Moses and Samuel, I wouldn't even listen, they wouldn't even change my mind. Even if they stood before me, I wouldn't change my mind towards you. You're cast out. Two chances they had to humble themselves not just confess their sin, but to repent of it in their heart. And both times they went back to the same kind of argumentation. And God says, I I reject you. And then God says, I'm going to cast you out. I'm not going to accept it. And we have millions at this point. when you listen to their quote-unquote testimony, when you hear their claim and ask them to explain their claim to heaven, their claim to forgiveness, sound an awful lot like verses 7 through 9 and verses 19 through 22. And that isn't enough. All that does is put you in a condition where Christ never knew you. And because this is what Christianity has come to mean, I have told my teens, I told them a few weeks ago, I really don't like to even use the term. I, at this point, asked people not, did you accept Jesus as your Savior? Because this is what they mean by that. I confess my sin and Jesus is God is love. Um, I asked them a question, um, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you follow him? It's fascinating when you get to Revelation that the the way, the designation of the uh, 144,000 throughout the seven years of wrath is that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That is the designation of ones who have repented. They have turned away from the sin path. They have stopped wandering and they are following the shepherd wherever he goes. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I was once a sinner. 
and I confessed that sin, but I did not sit there and stake claim on the love of God without recognizing that it calls upon me to repent of that, to turn from it, and to follow Jesus Christ. And it is no mistaking, as you get in the New Testament, that this theme is carried forward, that you must take up your cross and follow Jesus. From Peter, John, James, all of them, you need to follow. This is the power of 1 John. You need to walk in the light. This is the the spirit of Galatians. You need to walk in the spirit. It is that followingness that is the evidence that there is genuinely a change in heart, that you are walking away from sin and and the world and, and all of that, and you are walking in righteousness and in truth. That is what it means to be converted. Not to just confess your sin, claim the love of God in your life, and talk about His grace and mercy all the time, and never transform anything. That's what Judah was doing. That's what the false prophets were doing to their people. They were giving them half the story, and they thought they had a valid claim on God, and there are going to be, according to Christ, many on the day of judgment making this same argument with disastrous results. And so it is imperative that we change our vocabulary sometimes to make it more precise of what God requires of men. Certainly it is not our own righteousness that we are trusting in, it is the work of Christ, but the evidence that you are truly trusting in the work of Christ is that you follow the Lamb, that you are walking in the Spirit, that you are walking in the light that you have put works to your faith, as James says. And this is what is accepted before God. This is genuine conversion. This is repentance. Not what we see in so many churches, so-called, and so many speakers, that are not giving the full word of the Lord, they're giving half-truths. That men actually think they can say to God, remember your covenant, when they don't remember it themselves. And so we need to change our vocabulary, we need to change our expectations, and we need to change our perspective at looking at people and determining whether they need to hear the gospel or not. Because the fact is, just because they're religious... Just because they're in church, just because they claim the love of God, does not equal that they have repented and turned from their sin or following the Lamb. So the question needs to be asked, are you following Jesus? And here's what I often hear. Well, you know, I try. None of us can really do it. And and that's all excuse. It really is. What it tells me is your heart isn't right. You've excused your own sin with that declaration. And that's exactly what these people were doing. Are you following the Jehovah? Well, you know, we told him we sin. We go and do the burnt offering thing, and and um, he's love, and he's our God. We we got his we got his name on our title of our country. You know, Israel. You know, we've got it. We're his people, so I guess we're right. No, are you following him? Well, we try wrong we should without shame with with boldness and courage declare i am a follower of jesus christ period i give no excuse for any failure in that i confess it when it happens but i walk in the light i walk in the spirit i seek to add to my works or to my faith works and i seek to give evidence this is defining me I'm not trying to get an excuse for my sin so that I can sneak into heaven. That's not what this is about. This is about me being now reborn in the image of Jesus Christ. And when that begins to percolate and begins to define us and begins to mean (laughs) 
something in our lives. And that's how people can recognize us. Then, God will accept us. It is the evidence that God sees into our heart that we have truly repented and not just confessed. And I certainly pray that is the condition that each of you is, is in, that none of you have believed half the truth. But it also needs to be on our lips as we tell people and encounter people, even people who claim to be Christians, that we challenge that. Jeremiah is willing to challenge it. Does that mean that you have prayed the sinner's prayer or, and do religious activity? Or does it mean that your heart has changed and you are a follower of Jesus Christ? There is a difference. The one is in deep trouble and the other one is heading toward glory. You need to be able to distinguish that. And I would challenge you to use different vocabulary in your sharing of Christ with those around you and in your quote-unquote fellowship with other saints, so-called, that you clarify that. And when you see there's the lack of evidence, you have this example, a very strong one, and I think is, is the foundation of a lot of what we see in the, in the New Testament's concern over the lifestyle of Christians are so-called built off of this. So we are called to true repentance. And this is what we need to share with the world around us. Let's go on prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you might help us to be distinguishing, to be discerning. We might not just accept half-truths and recognizing that the ramifications of that are disastrous on the lives of men who only hear those and think that they are sufficient and think they have a claim against you, believe they are rectified when they are, in fact, under judgment. Lord, give us a heart to speak the fullness of your truth. And Lord, that we might Concern ourselves also with our own hearts. Not just the outward appearance, but what is our longing, our desires. If they are not after you, that you might bring conviction and that we might surrender them and come to you fully desiring to follow after you. Knowing that the alternative is not a secondary Christianity, but a lostness that will bring certain judgment. Lord, we thank you for your word again, as always. Pray that it might resonate in our hearts and minds in the days and weeks to come to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.